Welcome everybody to the latest in our series of podcasts on making your business less dependent on you, um, sponsored by A4G Chartered Accountants and Durban Offshoring. Um, this week, I've got really interesting guest with me, Richard Marshall. Um, I noticed the raised eyebrows there, Richard. Um, very interesting guest. Um, Richard Marshall um, has been a client and friend of mine for 17 years. I worked out, I think it'll be 18 this year. And um, I've been um, his accountant and witnessed all sorts of challenges and ups and downs over that period as he built his company Timberwolf into the biggest manufacturer of wood chippers in the UK. Um, so first thing I was just going to say to Richard really was um, it's an interesting journey, this one, because it, it had very small beginnings um, with his father, I believe, repairing lawnmowers in um, in the garage. Is that right, Richard, how it began? That That is correct, Malcolm, yes. Uh, my father started um, repairing lawnmowers in 1969 uh, is when he did it as a sort of a part-time weekend job to uh, supplement his uh, supplement his income so uh, and then by chance one of his neighbors had a hardware store and it was overwhelmed with lawnmowers so he started doing them at the weekend and uh, that man ended up sort of handing over the lawnmower side and my father was actually doing the lawnmowers in his uh, in his garage at the side of the house um, uh, that very slowly grew so that he then had a a shop in Rochester High Street, and then he started doing not just repairs, but he was also selling lawnmowers. So, and that was 1978 by that time. So, and then 78, uh, he then moved into the um, industrial estate up at Rochester Airport, and uh, and it was up in that yeah, at Rochester. It was up at the Rochester Airport that uh, one of his customers uh, came to him in 1985 and said to him, I'd like to buy a wood chipping machine um, to use. Uh, I've been and had a look and I can't find what I want. And it was very clear in the sort of machine that he wanted. And uh, my father said, well, I'm the expert. I'll go out and find you one. So he, he went and did all his research. Obviously, this is way before internet and everything. So it took several weeks. Um, and he came back and said, no, I can't find one either. Uh, of what you want, but I think I could make you one. Um, and and the guy said, "Well, okay, if you can make me one, I'll buy the I'll buy the prototype. If you if you have a play and see what you can do." Um, and that's what happened, and that turned into a machine that they first sold in 1986. Um, and and the reason that's important in that that one person that happened to be the Southeast Electricity Board. And uh, and so that was quite a big customer, and they ended up over a period of years buying about 80 machines from him. So and that was the very very foundation of what was to become uh, eventually Timberwolf. And um, so along the way, we've had um, two very distinct journeys here because um, obviously you joined the business, and that enabled your dad to be able to ease, ease his way out and retire. Um, and then you've grown it for um, about 20 years. And now you've come out the other side because in the last couple of years, you've sold the business and 
um, are able to do the things that you want to do in life. Yeah, that's right. I have. Um, yes, it's been quite a journey. Uh, we had. Um, we first started off with just uh, my dad, my mum, and myself. And uh, used to say, my dad built them, I sold them, and my mum counted them. And uh, <laughs> and that was the, and that was the very beginnings of uh, of the business. And um, and we grew that. Um, we moved up to Suffolk in nineteen. And basically, my father was a very good engineer um and knew how to sort of problem solve but he wasn't a very good salesman so uh when i got when i got involved in the business in 91 although he'd sold lots of chippers he'd only actually ever sold one to a tree surgeon and all the others were to electricity boards so i asked him i said hand hand me the database of all your customers and i'll uh, and i'll sell to them so he gave me four scraps of paper in the back of his drawer <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the database, yeah. <laughs> the database, yes. And, uh, and then I started building a database slowly from there, and uh, and and it evolved, and and we both slowly took off, basically. And uh, it grew. Uh, like I say, we moved up to an old pig farm in Suffolk. We had about four thousand square feet up there, and uh, we grew that till we had about thirty people were in the building. So it was very crammed, very very full up. It used to take us about, we used to have to empty the building of all the stuff to make room to be able to build a chipper and then put it all back in at night again. So it was also a very hand-to-mouth wow. type of uh, exercise. Yeah. Uh, and eventually we moved down to the factory that you know in Stone Market in 2002. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So for those um, people that are listening to the podcast who um, are right in the middle of um, running a business that is really sort of highly dependent on them I'm, I'm hoping that you're going to be able to um give them a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel by by talking about when you were at that stage of your business and so so my first question really is just about um any times on that journey when you know the stress levels were through the roof and maybe you felt a bit overwhelmed by the amount of responsibility that was on your shoulders um yeah well i think you've got to get the first thing is if you're going to get over that hump that you're talking about where you can actually get to run the company rather than be part of it then you you've, you've got to get over yourself in, in the first part of it's the first part of the problem because if you can't see that you are a lot of the problem because you are you ultimately you start this little thing off it starts to grow and it turns into a monster and then you get trapped in this in this cycle that you can't get out of. And a lot of that is, in my opinion, is sort of uh, you, you put it on yourself. And um, if you can't let go of some of that control, and to let go of control, you need to put some processes in place. Then you can't get then you can't get beyond that. And uh, yeah, you do. Part of the problem solving is dealing all of that that pressure that you said about is. You could you either accept the pressure and you normalise it, and you stay as you are, or you go, I don't like this, and you and you and you work your way out the other side of it by having other people and then putting in the processes that enable them to do their job, um, so that you're not micromanaging the whole thing, because that just gives you more stress. Was there a bit of a moment when um, you you 
perhaps realised that um, you needed to get over yourself, as you put it, um, release a bit of control? Or did you always have a, a clear vision that that was how the company would need to grow? Um, I think I, yeah, it's quite early on is that I realised that I was useless. Um, I couldn't, do, I, did, I wasn't very good at anything. So, uh, so I knew that I was always, I needed to find people that were better than me because I can do something to an extent. But um, a, a lot of people are blessed with a talent, if you like, or a specialism, but it, it traps you. Whereas I found that I wasn't very good at anything. So I just needed to, so what I needed to do is become good at finding people uh, to recognize the problem and then to fill the gap with someone other than me. So right. whenever I, whenever, as the business grew, I basically had more and more hats that I had to wear in the company. So I'd, be, I'd, I'd have to service my van, make sure the van was good. Then I'd have to get the chipper ready for, for, uh, for sale. And then I'd have to go and deliver the chipper. And then I'd have to invoice the chipper. And then I, you know, all of those jobs for me and, I, and every single job I said, I don't want every job I've got, I don't want. So my job was to get rid of my job. Right. Um, so, that, so, 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 <laughs> yeah. So useless, but very good at um, delegating and finding people to delegate to is what you're saying. <laughs> uh, yeah, de delegation. Uh, yes, yeah, so delegation is important, definitely. Um, yeah. yeah, and then you've got to, and then you've got to obviously tune it to having the right people. Yeah, so that's, not easy, that's not easy either. Did, did you ever get up to a point where you were sort of doing stupid hours before? you were starting to be able to delegate? Um, yeah, you go, yeah. So from 92 to 99, I was averaging 80 hours a week. My 80 answer. hours a week? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was for about seven years. So right. basically that, that, my, my 30s when I had the energy to do that sort of thing. Right. Okay. I mean, just looking back, do you think that you needed to work as hard as that? Was that just a time that you had to get through and do those things? Uh, I think it was an exciting period, so I was motivated to do it, if you like, because I could see there was this sort of inkling that this thing was actually going to go somewhere and I could turn it into something. Uh, it, it wasn't every, every not it didn't grow every single year, but uh, it, it, in that period it probably had two down years, which were not down dramatically, but, but um, you know, relatively flat. But the point is, is that it was, it was a growing business. So it, it was a great, it was a growing business, um, and yeah, it needed quite a lot of control because it was I didn't have enough people. I was filling in the people, but you had to do it in a way that the company could survive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is, it's interesting you saying this because obviously, you know, we um, a lot of our clients come to us in their thirties. Um, you know, we often say our aim is to be people's second and last accountant. And so, so we don't really get that many startup businesses. People, you know, often start up from their spare room, you know, with Auntie Beryl doing their bookkeeping or something. And then somewhere along the line, you know, they've they've, they've achieved the early stages of success, and yeah. um, and then realise there's a bit more to it, and they know they need a bit more advice. And it's that classic line of what got you here won't get you there, and you know all that energy they've got in their thirties. Um, suddenly sort of at, um, in their late 30s um they, they they they're starting to feel a little bit of burnout but um difficult to step away from what's made a success up to that point isn't it 
Yeah, so so for me, I was trying to, so I was sort of in an MD role uh, by, by 1999. So um, with, with around um, 28 to 30 people. Um, and you just sort of, uh, but that still wasn't enough for the amount of activity that was going on. So it was still very heavily reliant on me for the sales side of things. And I needed to put more people into place to sort of try and get that bit the more people you get in, if you get them doing the right job, then you start to get <clears> that sort of helicopter view, I think they call it. Yeah. So you can step out of the company and start looking at to the future. So that's what I always used to do is try and look to what if we if we do X, then what problems are we going to create? What problems are the company is the company going to have as we move towards that that problem? So and then I try and sort of uh, alleviate that before we got there. Yeah, it's interesting you mention um, <clears throat> sales staff in in this context because um, you know what, what I see is that is the hardest position for any of our clients to fill, and um, you know the number of times when a, um, a client of mine has um, who might be struggling a bit has told me they've taken on this wonderful salesperson and. You know, this is going to transform the company. That's what they're implying. And six months later, um, it's all gone disastrously wrong and massive acrimony because this person um, massively oversold themselves and their own ability, really. So, you, you know, you you appear to have um, got past that um, along the way. Was that, was that um, a smooth journey to, to get in the, the business's sales to not be as reliant on you? Um, it was a process that I went through. So when the, when the company started, um, I was basically a hundred percent of the sales of the company and I was selling, um, about 50 chippers a year. So it's one a week for me. So that was my, my work was just to do one a week. And I sat there and I thought, well, how am I going to do a hundred? Cause I can't, I'm working quite hard to do 50. So how do you get, how do you get to a hundred? So I just sort of did the math and thought, well, how many people am I contacting? I've got to do double the contact. I've got to double the size of the database. You, you just do the mathematics of what you've got to do to, to uh, have, the, have the same result uh, on, a, on a bigger scale. Um, and so what I realized is that I needed to, so what was happening is I was getting an inquiry, convincing them to see the chipper, going out, showing them the machine, coming back, phoning them up, saying, what do you think? They're saying, yes, I'll have it. I then go and deliver the machine and come back again. So it's a huge process. So I thought, well, if I could, if I, my first step was to go, I, I'll do the demonstration because I know I can sell the chipper. And then, but what I'll do is I'll get a man in the business to deliver the chipper for me. So just having that man deliver the chipper, suddenly I've got this huge amount of time because a chip delivering a chipper is a day's work. So now I've gained myself a day and I could, and I could do that. So then, uh, and then slowly I created some, um, we were called NTech, NTech UK, and I created some NTech UK dealers. So I had about four or five dealers that were also able to sell the machines, and I gave them areas. Uh, and then they took over about, they were, uh, contributed about 20% of the sales on an annual basis for, for them. Um, and so and I could see that dealers was the way forwards because people, wanted to buy locally. So uh, I then got a salesman in that was 
that knew about dealers, if you like, to go out and just find find his dealers. And uh, and he was that was the first time I saw what I would call a, a pure salesman. Um, and it, he was very good at his job, um, but he never looked like he was doing anything, uh, which is typical of salesmen. So so my dad used to. Uh, I remember my dad coming up to me once and said, um, he "said that I won't name him that." That that man over there, um, he said, does he do? He said, is he doing anything? He said, I just see him going outside and smoking all day. Um, <laughs> I said, I said, oh no. I said, leave him alone. I said, he's doing a really good job. Uh, I said, I can't explain. I can't give you the all the ins and outs of it, but he's bringing us the results that that, we, that I couldn't bring to the table. So, yeah. uh, so it was a really good. Uh, it was a, It was good to have. It showed me that having the right person is very powerful. Yeah. It's a very powerful part, and that's what I started to concentrate on, is trying to get the right people in the right place. So you're, you must have been pretty good at trusting other people, which, you know, which, um, you, know you, you, you might not consider that to be a, a really important characteristic. But, you know, I, I, I see a lot that with um, clients sort of hit this plateau, and often it's just their inability to trust other senior people within their organisation. But you did you you seem to have sort of sailed through that, um, Richard? Didn't have any option. I wasn't. Like I said I didn't have the talent. I can't. I can't do everything. I'm not. I'm. I've only. I sort of skim the surface of everything. I'm not. I'm not an expert in, in any field. So uh, I didn't have any option other to trust. Uh, but, well, the option would have been to stand still, of course. That's that would have been the other alternative to stay at the same size of business and you know carry on for years, um, squirreling a few quid away in a pension. Yeah, I was uh, well. I was I was uh, young, ambitious, and four children, so it was everything was expensive. So no, I, I was driven to no. I don't. I think the thing for me is whatever I get hold of, I just like to make it better. So that's my that's my natural inclination for something is to make it more uh, is to make it bigger and to make it more efficient. That's yeah. Fine. So didn't didn't have an option if you wanted to grow is what you're saying. Right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's you know that that that's a that's a, a key fork in the road for many many businesses. There are a lot of businesses that get to that certain size, and um, you know they they the choice is to trust others. Or stay as you are, and 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 often they choose to stay as they are. So yeah, as, long yeah. as, you, as long as you accept that that will, to, to me, the thing I I see a lot of people that have got a um, a ta- talent. Let's say uh, someone that's a plumber, for example. You, you're highly skilled at the job. You, you you do it for twenty or thirty years. But the problem is, is that you get old, and because you you're stuck, you haven't made that decision to grow the company so that you're. you're you, you, you remain on the tools the whole time and yeah. suddenly you get all your, your bones give up on you and your muscles and everything and you, you become this old person and uh, you don't really want to be doing it so it's long, you need a long-term view as to what you what how you want to retire what you want to be doing and how soon you want to retire as to what speed you want to set your company yeah, yeah absolutely. I agree. you can have a nice life with a with a small business you can keep it simple but you have to accept that you're not going to sell it for Two million pounds when you're finished with it, yeah. because it's you know Steve Wright's plumbing, um, and they can't buy you because you're the bit that wants to leave. So yeah. it, has no, it has no value. 
Yeah. Apologies if there is a Steve Wright Plumbing um, out there listening to this podcast. Um, I, I think that was just a random um, sort it out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, so apart from taking on chain smoking salesmen, um, yeah. what, what's you know what, what do you think was the biggest risk that you've taken over the years? Biggest risk, um, I suppose. Buying my parents out would have been considered a big a big risk at the time. Uh, having that decision uh, where the company was starting to become successful um, and I was still ambitious. So he's wanting to have, he's going, this is quite nice, I like this. So he's gone low risk and I'm wanting to take risk in the business to, to still grow it. So we sort of, so it became hard for us to work together because he thought I was a madman uh, and he just wanted things to be the same. So, yeah. uh, and for me, I didn't want that. I felt there was more in the company um, and he didn't understand why I wanted to risk it. So it was fair. I spent 18 months convincing him that it was, that it was the right thing to do. And he spent 18 months telling me why I wasn't ready to, right. to do it. But he, he he enjoyed himself after um, you released him from the business, didn't he? He had um, he had a very good retirement. He had a very nice retirement, but um, but he saw it as rejection. <laughs> right. Because you're, you're, you're saying to someone, "You're in my way," so it's a it's a rejection for him to right. see. In the he got over it, but he didn't understand. He was very upset that I didn't feel that that I wanted to um, move on without him. Right. I'm I'm sure there's a few people listening to this uh, where we're uh, struggling with one or two of those family dynamics as well. It's um, yeah, something we see all the time, really. So yeah, Um, I was definitely not. I was definitely not ready when we. So so I joined him when I was 25, um, and definitely wasn't ready. And then sort of grew by the time I'm uh, in my mid 30s, and I, I feel I'm ready for it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you you can never be completely ready, can you? Because you've never, whatever, you know, what, what, whatever it is you've got to do in that position, you you've never done it until you do it. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. good. Um, so a few challenges over the um over the years. I might um I might be able to guess the answer to this one, but we'll we'll see. Um, what do you think is the biggest setback? that um that you had to overcome um yeah you guessed right probably uh it was two things at once happening really it was the um the worldwide recession thing hitting at in 2008-9 um combined with what i call the murder of my business partner alex yeah so that uh that, that was not uh not not scheduled to be happening yeah, and that, and the, two of those events happening at the same time was quite quite a lot to contend with. Yeah, yeah, I did guess that that would be uh, the 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 time. Yeah, the um, and how do you feel that personally you were were able to deal with those things? Did that um, kick you into action, um, or was there sort of any was there any periods when you thought that uh, struggled to see the light at the end of the tunnel? All, all of that. The uh, yeah, it was it was difficult at the at the beginning because 
it felt like um, um, economically the tax had been turned off. The, the business just went from roaring to virtually zero uh, at the same time as um, Alex was not there anymore and he was like the kingpin for me. We worked together. Uh, yeah. so, so having that, that person missing right at the key point was incredibly difficult. Uh, but by the same token, um, because of the seriousness of the situation, I found it was one of those times where the whole business pulled together and everyone sort of gathered around and said, what, what do you need, sort of thing. Uh, and that, that was incredibly motivating, if you like, to, because we were in survival mode at that point, you're not quite sure that you've got a company that's going to, to pull through the whole thing. So, um, so it was nice that everyone pulled together and uh, we did what was necessary. Uh, it took until about, we basically stabilized the company. So we just sort of got our overheads uh, low enough that we could sustain a very low level of sales. And then we just said that our main objective was to get to, to those sales. And then um, anything over that was a bonus. And we just, yeah. so until, so from 2009 to 2011, we're basically, it used to be what you call Groundhog Day. So you just come in and keep just doing exactly the same thing to just get to those results. So that the company was in a position that it was, uh, that it was definitely surviving, even if it was boring. So we stopped yeah. all the plans for growth. We just went into a, into a sustainability mode, um, which was boring from, my world of wanting it to move, but it was nice and safe for us. Yeah. What were there people within the organisation that sort of you know surprised you in terms of how well they responded to to those difficult times? Anybody that sort of excelled beyond what you thought they might have been capable of before? I don't know if I can answer it that way. Yeah, there's there's, a, there's always people. I think the thing is is that you, you can have a anyone that you think is key employee. They're not, they're not going to be key forever. So the people, the people are always in a cycle and they have highs and lows. So there's points in your company where you look around and go, whatever we do, we mustn't lose Kevin. He, you know, and then three years time, Kevin's a pain and, and uh, he's gone off the rails. So it's, it's an ever changing cycle. Uh, yeah. People ebb and flow in their importance um, in a company, depending on what, what problems are around. So. I couldn't single out um, anyone in particular, but I think that everyone did step the game up, and and that that was uh, that was what was needed at the time. So you sort of alluded to being a fairly good um, delegator along the way, Richard. Um, the um, what what what's your best tip on delegation? Uh, yeah, uh, I'd say give them enough space to do to do their work. If you're going to delegate then delegate and let them let them do their let them set off uh let them make mistakes i'm afraid uh because without the mistakes they don't get to see uh they, they don't get to do the learning side of it um and if you're going to watch over their shoulders then you're going to just sit there thinking i could have done it quicker myself um and that's not the point because eventually you've got to get them to a position where you don't have to look at them but you've got to go through that pain barrier um to get there so that you can then concentrate on other things yeah it's interesting you know I, I work in an office um full of accountants and you know i think um 
generally speaking, we're all perfectionists, um, and and you know we we share that characteristic with quite quite a lot of our clients really, and that whole thing about oh, it's quicker for me to do it myself um in you know in the short term feels like a good decision in the long term it's a terrible decision because it just means you'll be doing it yourself forever really yeah no it's a horrible thing to do that's that's what i'm saying you've got to have a very clear objective of what you want as final outcome for your business if you're very happy doing doing what you do and and you enjoy it uh and you you accept that it's going to uh, uh, constrict on how much you're going to actually earn um then then fine but if you if you you've got a sort of a penchant for shiny objects and things like that then you have to uh you have to put in the effort and get the infrastructures to uh to enable you to get to to those shiny objects yeah so to tell me you know we've, we've talked about a few people that um you've had working in your organization but how how did you go about recruiting the right people for Timberwolf. Uh, I delegated it. I'm, uh... <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so once you get to so yeah, um, for me, I'm not a people person. Um, so I had to get rid of that job as quickly as I could because, uh, and I actually gave the responsibility. So if you can think of a of a company growing, and as I said, I used to have all these different hats that I wore. And basically what those hats do is they slowly become departments. And so I used to make the department person responsible for the person that they needed. So I, I would help them in the process with the paperwork side of things. And I may have attended interviews in the early days. Uh, so it just depends on your skill sets. So I'm a relatively good people reader, but, uh, but, I, but I'm also not a people person. So, um, so I have to be careful. Well, yeah, I, I delegated it and uh, let them get on, and eventually um, it becomes a HR department, and you're uh, even more distance from it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, at best, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a people person, definitely. <laughs> well, um, uh, you know, obviously, in a business that is manufacturing something, you know, there, there's a, a high degree of precision that is required, not just in the manufacturing process, but in quite a few of the um, admin processes around it. So, you know, you, you must have had some really good systems for for dealing with a lot of this as well. It kind of just been down to um, bringing people on board and giving them the freedom to get on and do the best they could. If you're doing anything that's got a process to it, what I always say for the for the wood chippers, I said we're trying to um, build a build a McDonald's hamburger so that every single one must look and taste the same, um, and, and that was that's a really really hard thing to do uh, in manufacturing because you've got to really dig into your processes to make sure that it's uh, that you can do do a repeatable event on something that's got hundreds of components. Uh, yeah. So without having that um, system in, in place, you've got, you've got no chance because every, every, every chip will turn out uh, unique. And yeah. so you, need, you need them all to turn out the same so that all, everyone behind that comes behind after the chipper to support it knows what you've done to it. Because yeah. obviously you've got to send the right part out for a machine that's made in 2005 
the part of components going to change between 2005 and 2007 and you've got to know when it changed and why it changed and if it's if it's compatible back compatible and you know or does it need or is it a component that completely changed its part number and became something new so you haven't got all of that um written down and process and and, and sort of uh, logged then what happens is in some companies you get the specialist in the back of a stock room that knows every machine it's all in his head and when he retires your company's in real trouble so yeah. no so another tip for me is never let anything sit in people's heads get it out yeah. and, uh, into the into the company yeah absolutely and you know that's um every every business has systems you know every person has um systems even if it's just how they get out of bed and um, get to work in the morning but it's it's whether it's written down isn't it whether it's accessible to other people is key yeah and that's what we did. really actually ended up creating our own program uh for it so when we first started when we first started um like i say when my dad was sort of uh we were building 50 machines a year and my dad would wander around the the um warehouse with his clipboard and go oh i need some of those i need some of those and that and it was as easy as that and then uh and then when jeff came in and we started to have a few people building them we built at a faster rate uh and you couldn't afford for the bits not to be there so uh this is before uh computers we were just at the beginning of computers 1998 so um so we had an excel sheet sheets that used to run the stock system for us and then that became too difficult uh it became too cumbersome to use and i went out and tried to buy a database system that could do um uh, it's called multi-relational databases where two parts of the database can speak together um and the first system that i bought um it used to do this process to, tell, to check if i had enough components to build the machine um it would sit there whirring around for a couple of hours and then it would come up with the answer not enough components to build the machine <laughs> but it wouldn't tell me what i'm short of <laughs> so i used to find that i could i by the time i'd gone through the system and found all the errors in it um to say that we could build a machine jeff had actually built it and, and it had been shipped so the computer was behind real life right so that system went back, and we actually ended up building our own system uh, with, a, with, with, a, with a very clever man. Um, and that system ran us from 1999 up until 2011 or 12. We ended up running the whole. It ran the whole of our production and everything except accounts. Accounts right. is the only thing that we've never tried to do because you can buy that off the shelf. Yeah. Yeah. But everything else was so complex um, that um, we couldn't afford to buy at the time in 1998 uh, a a manufacturing database uh, relational database system was about 120,000, which was like almost the same as my turnover. So right, it was just a, it was just a complete the time. at the time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, right, and and I think it's probably worth me mentioning for um for the people listening that you know whilst you had certain machines that were your you know your big sellers and your your bread and butter if you like there were some of the machines that you made were a little bit more specialist and were fairly small 
um, production runs, really, weren't they? So quite a lot of time would have gone into, um, you know, the systems and the processes for those machines for what would be a relatively small proportion of the of the company's turnover. Uh, yeah, but you don't know that at the time. When you're, uh, no one can tell me what the number one shipper is going to be, and no right. one can tell me what yeah. the next, the next one is going to be. So yeah. without, so all, what you have is you have a basic process. So it doesn't matter whether it's going to be low volume or not. You've got to put it through the process to, to okay. capture any of the information. The fact that you end up not selling very many of them is 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 another part of your learning process. Um, where you not read the market right, or or the, or the market is too small for in, too small an interest in that area, and unfortunately you just don't know which ones are going to fly and which ones are are going to be um, specialists. Yeah, so you've got to you've got to put the work in on the processes for all of them. So yeah, that's why that's why businesses like you don't get an overnight success in business, do you? you just you, you, you beaver away and then you look back and you go, oh, that was thirty years. Yeah, uh, and it just went because you just yeah. try and find, you know, it's, you don't you don't get success at everything that you do. Um, obviously, you know, it's important to have good systems, but it, but the people concerned, particularly those in the um, in the factory, um, you know, or for any of our service um, businesses that are listening, you know, the people that do the thing that generates the income, you know, that they they all need training on those processes you're going to tell me you delegated all the training aren't you absolutely yeah <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so training is not something that comes day one when you when you've got the business most of the time the guys are trying to just survive the week and get get everything done it's only when you've got the processes in place and the, and the, and the right people that you get the space that you can start to look at going to either you know, can look, re-look at the process and start to sort of record what you're doing and make sure that everyone is doing it in, in the same manner. So, and a lot of people don't see the importance of that side of it, but it's actually key if you're going to get the business over the hurdles, because it means that you, you've got people in the business that then know how the business is meant to behave. And when someone new comes in, they're telling them and not you, so that you're running yeah. all these people through the process without you being involved in it. Otherwise, you just you just get buried in HR and retraining people all the time. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's not something you can do from day one, but you definitely strive towards it. Yeah. I mean, you're almost talking about a culture of, of precision within yes. the organisation so that every new person that comes in is aware of that culture and the day they join. Uh, definitely, yeah. Definitely, there's a culture, and definitely, you're trying to attract certain types of people. So it, it's quite interesting watching some of the people start. You give someone the responsibility to right. You're now a, a, you, you're now going to employ the people that you need, and you watch them go off. And they examples. Um, you get yes, I've chosen the right man. He's brilliant, excellent. And you go back in two weeks later, you go, there's your man. Uh, um, he was in prison over the weekend. Um, and, <laughs> Is and this a true story? Yeah. <laughs> right, okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, and, it's, and it's like, they have to go through that learning process of um, 
what you've got to you've got to get the people to be a fit to the people that are there otherwise it creates pandemonium pandemonium yeah and um yeah so you've got to make sure that everyone that's coming in if you have a certain culture then obviously you don't want to just if that culture works for the company then you don't want to disrupt that so you get the culture you get the people to fit it and then you train them to to sort of do that what's required to keep that culture alive if you like yeah so there's a subtle change that happens for um for a business owner when when it gets to that certain size when you know but perhaps you don't know everybody in your organization even if you know their names you don't really know who they are or everything they do and you know and that that's when you you're shifting from being the most senior manager in the organization to being the leader um did you feel comfortable when you got to that point the first time I realised that I'd got there is when a staff member asked if they could help me when they saw me wandering around. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I did want to get to that point. I, I like I say, I'm. Um, I always wanted to get people in place so that the company could perform at its best, and I felt that I, 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 I was a. I ultimately I would be a restriction on the company. So I always needed to. So I was always prepared to, unlike my dad. I was prepared to, I wanted to step away from it uh, to, so that it could fly. So that's how, that's how I saw it. So in terms of leadership style, would it be fair to say that your leadership style, you used the word facilitator before, and, and it, it feels like your leadership style was to facilitate the relationships between the senior people in your organisation so that the collectively the business was all going in the right direction yes yes absolutely yes so i saw myself as a uh when i was involved uh i was the visionary I, this is where I, I sort of set out the big picture of where it wanted to go um and then i would try and discuss it with them and make sure that you know you, you've taken all your when i do my visionary thing it's not that it's, i haven't sat in a dark room on my own you've taken all of the sort of inputs that you've had over over that year or however many years it is that gives you that idea and you piece it all together and you come up with the direction that you think you should be heading based on all the market activity that's going on and then you sort of uh, get their inputs and you piece it all together and you come up with something that everyone wants to is nodding to yeah. uh, and then and then you give them enough space to achieve that and did that ever involve dealing with, um, I don't know if conflict is too strong a word, but, you know, um, challenging relationships between some of those senior managers, perhaps? Did, did you have to, um, you know, help help some of those relationships become more? I don't think, well, for, 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 for what we're talking about here, Timberwolf, um because of the um people that we've got in the company because of that culture if you like conflict isn't a massive one for us so you've got characters you've got characters that have a more uh forthright view than others uh but that character also can be you can tell them to pull their horns in without upsetting them because uh because you've already told them that their character is of that. Because you can have those conversations with people, 
you can control their whether they're a bull in a china shop sometimes you need them to be or you tell them that today you're going to be behaving yourself and you're going to hear, hear what other people have got to say so yeah. so yeah there was a it was it was there's a bit of manipulation as there always is with trying to get people to all work together uh so yeah you're dealing with you, you're having two conversations and then coming into a room uh with everyone sort of knowing what's expected of them uh because you're just trying to do the best for what the company needs to achieve not the ego of one person over another yeah. you've got to get the egos out of the room uh and just just go, go for the company and so um to, to, talking of egos you you managed to do something that very few um business owners ever do which was um you got over yourself completely by recruiting your replacement yeah. as managing director um which which i, I suspect would come as a real difficulty for um, for most people, even if they could afford to do so. Uh, yeah, I think I, I think that was a recognition that I was starting to get uh, tired. I dealt with quite a lot um, through through the business, you know, with Alex and um, well, going back to my father out and Alex and um, divorce and all those sort of things. Um, they all have they all take a toll um and um yeah i think i've become a little bit stale really and i didn't want but the company wasn't stale it was just me so i wanted to um how can i say it basically what happened is that i have to say this bit i'm just trying to trying to work it out what 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 started is is that uh, I don't like Mondays. I used to hate going into work on Mondays, um, and so sort of made this decision um, that I wasn't going to do Mondays anymore. And uh, what I did is I set up a home office. So although I was working from home, I just couldn't stand all the hassles and everything that happened on the Monday. Um, and um, that that slowly turned into be quite liking not going in on Mondays and then I thought this is so good I'm not going on Friday either um, <laughs> but that didn't work because the, the, the company needed me uh, more more than I thought so I like I like having my four-day weekend but but the company was was suffering for it so I had to uh, so we then came up with a bright idea that if I had an MD then I could um, Sort of, uh, I don't know if you want to call it the chairman's role or whatever, but I, I didn't really, I don't care what title I have. Um, and um, yeah, so that that's that was the evolution of the of the thought process is that we needed to put someone in there that had the energy uh, to take the whole thing on and and grow it, and um, and that was really important for, for for the company to get those sort of people in place because it suddenly gives you a whole different world of freedom because it is not relying on you so i was never able to one through the growing phases of the business i was never able to take a holiday of more than about 17 days uh because the whole thing used to sort of you leave on holiday and then it very slowly starts to topple over and you yeah. come back and pick it all up before it's before it become a car park or something so, um, so yeah, uh, so suddenly having that, it, it doesn't need me. 
some people could see that as a terrible rejection of you, and I saw it as an achievement. Fantastic. Richard, um, I could ask you loads of questions about um, the uh, how you went about selling the business, but perhaps we'll leave that for a different podcast because you've perfectly summed up that journey from when everything's dependent on you to the point when you have the freedom. Um, and so I think that's just a perfect um, point to leave the podcast. So thank you so much for all your time this morning. I hope that's proved really interesting to everybody listening. And we will be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode of the podcast. Thank you.